think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 80 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 81st episode and our first of Canada's 43rd Parliament. I'm Laurent Carboneau. <laughs> Forgot about that part. Uh, yeah, there you go. All mates in rainbow. And uh, yeah, so we had an election. Uh, it was busy. We didn't do an election or an episode for a couple of months uh, because uh, I was busy working on that election and Etienne was busy doing whatever he does. So actually, he wasn't really all that much busier than usual, but uh, he wasn't going to do the show on his own. Uh, although his impression of me is passable, uh, it would have been a little hard to sustain over the course of a 45-minute-plus episode. So we chose not to go that route. Correct. So um, this election happened on, uh, of course, October 21st, uh, and we now have a hung parliament where it seems that Justin Trudeau, I, I say it seems because we haven't had a throne speech yet, it seems that uh, Justin Trudeau will return as prime minister and his governing liberal party will continue to govern. Yes, I think you can say that almost certainly. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, just uh, to note, we're not going to do a ton on recapping the election. I mean, it's happened. It's like two weeks ago at uh, this point. Barrels of ink have been spilt on it. Yes. every Everything that could have been said has been said, I think, at this point. Um. So we're just going to move on and sort of just take the results and go from there and sort of see what, yeah. what that means for us. Obviously, our discussion will touch upon the election in various ways, but we just we don't want to center it. Yes. Yeah. Too, too late. Indeed. So where where to begin? Minority Parliament. Yes. Yeah, so that'll be interesting because everyone on the Hill has been working uh, since 2011 in a majority context. While there are plenty of people who uh, have you know, memories of the minority uh, period from 20, uh, 2004 to 2011. Um, many people do not. And so one first thing is I think we've had a running theme of this show has been the difficulty the liberals have had with the kind of nuts and bolts management of their legislative agenda and with the sort of mechanics of, of house leadership and whipping. And I think that those shortfalls will become more evident in a scenario where it matters more. Um, yeah, go, go ahead. Take, take us in. So, I, I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Um, the liberal minority is a pretty strong minority. Yeah, they are. Like, like It puts them one uh, recognized opposition party away from a confidence motion. Yeah, so, I mean, it gives them three dance partners, right? Yeah. The Bloc, the NDP, and the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Green, although much discussed for their kingmaker potential kingmaker position, I was always of the view that the odds of the Greens being in kingmaker yeah, of, of was going to, to be seats. very slim. Two to four seats being the, the dividing line is not common. Let's put it that way. No, not only is it not common, but then there's still all the other parties that you can deal with instead. So yeah. you're, you're one fifth of the, or you're one, I guess it'd be one fourth of the kingmaker potential if it was an incredibly narrow margin. Yeah. Uh, like, uh. Yeah. So. And, of course, this is all presuming that the votes are based on, like, every single person being in the House. Yes, which is never the case. Which is incredibly rare. Yeah. Well, yeah, almost never. Um, yeah. Very, very rare. So that puts us in an interesting position <laughs> where the government, and I believe this was the case for the Harper minorities as well, can sort of pick, pick and choose the people with whom they make deals. Yeah. From issue to issue. So, 
I mean, early on, one of the the tactics employed by the Harper government was basically to make everything a, con- a confidence um, right confidence vote vote because no one wants to go back into an election and to say. I dare you to vote against me. We're, we're yeah. going to do what we're going to do. And if you vote against any anything, yeah. you're yeah. triggering an election and yeah. you don't want to trigger an election. So tough. Yeah. So you're either going to abstain or you're going to support the government's position. Yeah. Um, I think Harper was actually in the news today saying that Trudeau should basically do the same thing. And I, I think he's probably right. When you look at the parties, so the NDP, I think it's safe to say, is rather broke. And is unlikely to want to trigger an election. Um, they're they're not in a stronger position. It's definitely um, like there's a need to catch breath right now on the part of, of every opposition party, but I think especially the NDP. Certainly, and then there's the Bloc who are you know riding a wave and feeling good, but they they are uh, they, gonna have a they really don't have anything to gain by getting another five ten seats. They are so gonna have a really interesting time because they have been not an official party for eight years now. And we'll have lost a lot of people uh, to, you know, various other things going on in their lives. Keeping in mind that Gatineau is not really a hub for political employment outside of the, you know, federal stuff. And I think a lot of block folks, for reasons that should probably be rather obvious, don't work for the federal government. Um, So I can just say, I've never met a block staffer in my time in Ottawa. I've met a couple. Have you? I, yeah. I never have. Um, and block MPs have been reasonably scarce over yeah. the past decade, give or take. Well, yeah, they had like, you know, a handful and then 10. Yes. And now yeah. they're up to 33. So they need to staff up. Is it 33? I think it's 33. Something in that realm. Yeah. Um, so they need to staff up a lot of offices. They do. And also a research office will be the first one they've had in eight years. Yes. And they need to figure out what they're doing with that. And also, frankly, like where did they get their talent from? Because like I said, the people who are former block staffers have probably mostly moved on. Many of them probably work for the CAC government. Uh, and then the CAC government's relations with the blocks are kind of frosty. Uh, there's been a lot of, like, there's no love lost there. The PQ is a rump of what it was, and I don't, they may be either just over or just shy of official party status in the Quebec legislature. So it's not like they're, like, they have tons of people to send over either. Like, their sort of pool looks shallow of people they can draw from. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Yes. It'll be interesting to see what a lot of the MPs who were elected on this wave, who, you know, like... When you are running, when you're, no one wants to run to lose. If you're like a serious candidate and you have a lot going on in your life and you're someone who'd make a really great MP, there's very little appeal for you in dedicating months of your life to a campaign you're pretty sure is going to lose. So you kind of take what you can get when you're forced to fill a slate yeah. um, in many places where you didn't expect to win. And like much like the, the, the 2011 wave. They're going to have some people who aren't really sure what they're doing and are going to have a lot of learning curve. Yeah, this is often the problem with any sort of big wave that sweeps over. Yeah. A party that isn't seen as having... Well, the Liberals, I think, are an interesting case for this because while they were... They they got lucky in candidate recruitment because they were riding really high for most of the time except for the six months before the 2015 election. Um, they were able to get a pretty good slate of candidates for that election, which I think is kind of the exception that proves the rule. And even then, I think they had some surprises um, and a lot of folks that are kind of riding the bench. Thinking of the Wild Rose in, was it 2010, um, is, is my personal example that I can think of. 
Um, but I mean, to an extent, you saw it with sort of the McGill Five and the NDP, yeah, who largely turned out to be excellent MPs. Um, once upon a time, <laughs> in any election where a party's popularity soars dramatically, either during the writ or you know in the few months just prior to the writ, yeah, the candidates that they have generally have been locked down for. I mean, this election, everyone seemed to be a mess of locking Scrambling, down yeah. candidates at the very last minute. But in a lot of other elections, those people are already locked in, you know, six months to a year ahead of time. Yeah. And so these are people attracted to the party when the party is uh, at a low point. And so they're not necessarily the star candidates. Yeah. Um, with the Wild Rose in particular, an example of that, when the Wild Rose... Um, had recruited all of its candidates in, you know, 2009. It was still a reasonably fringe party. Yeah. Come the 2010 election, is it? 2010? I think it was 2010. Um, come the 2010 election... It's 28 and 2008 and then 2012 in Alberta. It's 2012? Yeah. Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, 2012. Um, like... It was easy to pick off the candidates because... Yes. Well, and, and, the, and famously, the, right, that's why they lost that The election. Lake of Fire, uh, yeah. Alan Hunts, Huntsberger. Yeah. Well, this is the thing is also when you have candidates who are... And I think we're veering into campaign territory here. But when when you have candidates who are sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's colloquially called the name on ballot. Like, you're at, in, in this day and age, you are playing a lot of defense on those people. You are making sure that they are, are properly vetted, as I'm sure any political observer, anybody who watched the election, even casually, like, people dig up stuff and, you know, parties are knocked off their news cycle for a day. Um, so it's something you need to play a lot of defense around. You have people who want to talk to the media and then it's like, ooh, do we want them to? So there's a lot of that. So I, I think this point bears repeating. Um, that parties spend, give or take, about a million dollars a day over the course of an election. So being knocked off message for a day is equivalent to about a million dollar hit to a party's coffers. Yeah, given um, a 36-day election. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's incredibly tough. Yeah. If, if you're knocked off message and your leader is taking questions about, you know, the shitty candidate who yeah. never had a hope of winning but has suddenly run their mouth or has yeah. horrible Facebook yeah. past or whatever it is exactly that that can be an incredibly big blow to a party yeah um but to take us back to the minority situation it's just to say that the block will face some growing pains yeah in immense ones um they're also on cabinets uh sorry not on cabinets on committees yes um which is sort of a muscle that i imagine has atrophied a little bit there their mps haven't been on committees and question period i mean they will now have a They'll have to be a lot more strategic about they use their questions. They'll have the third position, which is great. Uh, it's definitely where you want to be if you're, you know, the Bloc Québécois in terms of where you can realistically expect to end up most of the time. The official opposition election of 93, notwithstanding, yeah, a bit of a fluke. Um, so great for them. But yeah, they will have to figure out how to use that effectively. And Jean, uh, Jean, Jean-Yves? Yves-François Blanchet Blanchet will have to kind of figure out how to be a parliamentary leader as well. Yes. um, Because he's never been one, right? He was an environment minister in the PQ, in the very short-lived PQ government, 18 months. Yeah. And uh, since then has been on TV a lot, which showed in the debates. Uh, (laughs) He was very effective. But uh, yeah, he's going to have to sort of get that together. So on on the potential longevity of this minority parliament what's interesting about it is that all three major opposition parties namely the conservatives the ndp and the bloc have to come together and vote to bring down the government yes 
which seems like an incredibly unlikely scenario. Because it's always going to be easy to pick someone off of those three. Yeah, and that their interests have to align at the right time. Yes, and that's the critical thing, right? It's at the right time. It's whatever the liberals are offering in desperation has to be completely outweighed by everyone's interests aligning at the exact right moment. So this could last a while. Yeah, it, it seems likely. It's uh, a recipe for stability at the government level, for sure. Yes, and forecasting forward, it seems likely that um, given the sort of two scenarios of the liberals throwing in the towel at a moment that's strategically op- uh, yes uh, well, strategically beneficial to them yeah. is substantially more likely to occur before the perfect alignment of interest yes. between the NDP bloc and conservatives. And it's worth saying as well that the the government, with its power to set the agenda 90% of the time, can make opposition parties eat shit in a way that they probably can't do as much during a majority parliament, in the sense that the minority or the, the opposition parties are going to be all too happy to stab each other in the face, right? Like, if they if there's a motion that the liberals put up, that is, you know, if the, the the conservatives are forced to vote against it and end up looking really bad in the GTA for whatever reason, but you know the the bloc and NDP are only too happy to make the conservatives eat a big plate full of dog shit. Like that's a a real dynamic that the liberals have going for them here. And uh, one last point to loop back on the bloc: it's also hard to imagine the bloc ever really being inclined to throw in the towel and call an election. Yeah, why would they, right? Because They're in a great position. They have yeah. they basically have nowhere to go but down. Yeah. To an extent. Like getting don't don't get me wrong, they could certainly win more seats. Yeah. But, but winning position winning is... five, ten, twenty more seats for the block. Yeah. Doesn't do doesn't give them anything that they don't already have. Yeah, exactly. So the the block are never going to be inclined to do basically anything. Except yeah. for support or not support the government, but support the continued existence of this parliament. Yeah, I, I might, I may eat my words on that, but no, I mean, like, we'll just see. yeah, I mean, obviously, like, you know, events change things, but like, just looking at it from the sort of irrational, logical, or platonic plane of existence here, like, that seems to be to me to be solid. You know, like, I, I don't see what would change that math. So one of one of the things we've sort of been talking on the edges of is you know how the dynamics are changing. Um, what's what's sort of central in minority parliament, or what becomes central? We've talked about it at a high level, but is the house leader? Yeah, and uh, the house leader and the whip, yeah. and how they negotiate with other parties, and that has been a problem for this liberal government up until now. Their first house leader was Dominic LeBlanc, um, very. Partisan. Well, he's incredibly partisan, but he had a bit of a rough go um, insofar as he tried to bring in rules, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Resolution 8 or something. Yeah. Yeah, That was the sort of big changes to House rules that would have severely curtailed a lot of the ability the the opposition parties had to, you know, throw spokes and things. Tried to bring in a procedural hammer. If I'm not mistaken, this was the cause of Elbowgate. Yes, um, it was. In, in the hubbub yeah, around it. That's correct. Um, tried to bring in the procedural hammer. Elbowgate happened. The government walked it back. And not too shortly after, um, LeBlanc was shuffled out for Chagger. Because yeah. I think the opposition, even, even in a minority government, the opposition have to work with the House leaders. Otherwise, it just becomes dilatory tactics in protest yeah. um, of sort of the non-cooperation. Yeah. Um, well, and also, frankly, it's like... I think we have a media and a public 
that do not like to see the majority government really use all of its weight. Yes. There, there's a sort of, there's a tendency to want to see a kind of fair play. Yeah, there's sort of norms of how parliament uh, yeah. conducts itself. And removing those and saying, no, the opposition doesn't get to do anything yeah, too like, bad like is... Steve, for conservatives, I think, may, may roll their eyes at this, but I think that Stephen Harper did pay a real political cost over time for his relative high-handedness with Parliament. Um, I think conservatives are skeptical of this. Uh, I don't know, Tan, if you share that opinion, but I, I think it really did hurt over time. I mean, it was one... It contributed One to, element yeah, of a exactly, narrative yes. of being dictatorial. Yes, exactly. Um, but then it went to Chagger, um, and Chagger sort of got thrown into a hard spot. Um, typically, I mean, she was a rookie parliamentarian at the time. Yeah. House leader is not typically a role that goes to a rookie parliamentarian um, because of the procedural nature of it, uh, the public nature of it, and to, to an extent you have to think on your feet uh, when you're actually in the house. Mm-hmm. Um but she hasn't done a great job of sort of marshalling bills along. Yeah, and we've discussed this. The, uh, the liberals haven't been places. particularly efficient with their parliamentary time, leading to this crunch of them needing to pass a whole bunch of bills um, through both the House and the Senate at the very end of the last session of Parliament. Um, so I don't know if Chagger will remain in that position. Um, but the other problem is there's not a lot of people who stand out um, on the liberal benches as potential candidates for that role, to me at least. Um, One name that popped into my head here was Mark Garneau. I don't know if they would move him out of a traditional ministerial portfolio, but... So, on something like that, the the one downside to it... So, had the election turned out slightly differently, I likely would have said Ralph Goodow. Yes. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, King Ralph has been uh, usurped, so... Yes. Yeah, so, democratically usurped, so it's fine. But uh, Yeah, it remains to be seen who they throw into that role. It will be an absolutely crucial decision. Yes. Um, but on someone like Garneau going there, the unfortunate side effect of being House Leader is that it's not as attractive a position as it is. Uh, as being a minister? As being a minister. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Yeah. You, you don't get to, you know, jet around the world and yeah. take all or the stakeholder... world in Garneau's case. <laughs> take stakeholder meetings and feel important and all the rest of it. You have a base... I, I don't know about the new parliament, but a basement office and, yeah, you know, it's, it's it's not fun. No. Or it's not as fun. No. Um, so that's that's one of the big questions. You don't get the little ghosty hand that signs things. The, the, the auto pen, the I think, is what, yes. what you're talking about. I am. I just want to call it the ghosty <laughs> hand. But uh, yeah, it's just a lot of fun gadgets you get to play with. So I, I can see why someone... But I mean, then again, it's really not up to them at the end of the day, right? Like, as this uh, as this Prime Minister's uh, Principal Secretary has famously said, like, you don't say no to cabinet positions. Yes. Unless we do, <laughs> as there are many historical indications yeah refuse them all the time so let's use that as an opening to go into a broader conversation about cabinet composition so guessing cabinet ministers and who's going to swap a very a very hot ottawa parlor game these days it is it's also a bit of a mugs game it is it absolutely says the guy who's made like at least four monetary bets i can think of um the, the fundamentally the problem with <laughs> just no response to that eh? well no. <laughs> there's a difference so the difference between making bets on individual cabinet ministers basically being removed from their roles is that sort of based on precedent 
Sure. Uh, or not precedent, but evidence and history of, you know, a given cabinet minister's performance and whether they're likely to go up or down um, and like regional salience and all, and all these other things. Um, but on like the broad, like this person is going to go here and this is going to go here. The problem with it is you don't have all the information because you don't know how the ministries are going to be changed, what yeah. positions are actually going to be on the table. Yeah, because, I mean, there could be, like, a minister for butter. Yeah. And no one would have guessed that there was going to be a minister for butter. And, like, then your, your whole thing is thrown out of whack. Yes. And yeah. you can, like, a uh, perfect example of that is Bill Blair, last go-round, uh, was made the minister border of crime. border security and yeah. organized crime. And uh, no one would have guessed that outside of sort of the inner circle. Um, and then, well, uh, whilst Ottawa is hot with rumors, typically the people involved in the cabinet-making decisions are a very, very tight-knit circle. Yeah. And they're not the type of people who talk a lot. No, that hasn't been the case since, like, the 90s. So... The, the, the sort of interminable uh, Cretien-Martin wars. Yeah, yeah. So there's... You know, I, I have my own, as Laurent has alluded to, my own my own bets place. <laughs> um, but, like, broadly, to give a sense of, like... I would be, I'm very excited to watch you lose money on this. There's so, some big questions outstanding. are like, how are the ministries going to be changed up? Uh, what does that change in focus mean? What lessons have they learned? A perfect That's example, a really critical question there. A perfect example of this and sort of emblematic of the liberals' approach to government over the past four years is I said as a department. Yeah. I said um, being formerly industry. Yes, and now innovation, science, and economic development. Yes, is an interesting portfolio because it was an industry department historically. Um, and it sort of has a dual mandate of both being a watchdog and a promotion and development of domestic industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so an example of that is they'll deal with regulating the same industries that they cash Promote. checks to. Yeah. And so it's always been this sort of weird tension in ISAD. Um, but ISAD has also grown completely unwieldy, has like five ministers that report up through it. Yeah. Um, and all the regional development agencies are tacked onto it, as well as, yes. you know, a uh, litany of other arm's length or quasi-arm's length. Well, yeah, or... like the Competition Bureau, the CRTC, like, these all sort of vaguely are traced back up through Fil- ISAD. Filter through ISAD. Yeah, not in, vaguely in the sense that they are not politically run, Yeah, but... You know, reports of the minister. So in Harper's government, the regional development agencies, there's five or six or whatever. Um, let's just use an example. ACOA, which is the Atlantic Canadian Opportunities, Opportunities Agency. Agency. They all yes. have weird branding. Western Economic Diversification. Is this a good one? Yeah. <laughs> WED. WED. Um, and there's one for Quebec and there's one for Ontario. Econo- and... There's actually two for Ontario. Yes. Well, actually one and a half for Ontario. FedNOR and... So FedDev, which is the Federal Economic Development Agency for Southern Ontario is a full standalone economic development agency where FedNOR is a program within what was formerly Industry Canada. And now there's a rural economic development agency? No, of, not. of some sort? There is a like, minister, there's a minister there's for There's a minister it? for rural economic development, but there's not a, a right, proper... Agency, yeah. 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 The, it hasn't been flushed out. Um, but all that is to say is that um, Baines has been in the role as... Minister Nephi Baines. Uh, yes. Minister Navdeep Baines has been in the role of ISAD minister for the past four years, never shuffled. No one cared who I was until Uh, I joined the cabinet. (laughs) And he has, I think, I think broadly it's acknowledged that 
I mean, among liberal circles, that he's done a good job in uh, in ISAC. He has not been the source of many disastrous stories for them. No. I think it's fair to say. But one of the areas where I think he was never able to focus much attention is in terms of the regional development agencies that yes. they have been put on the back burner. Yeah, and it's fair to say also that regional economic development agencies, well, what a mouthful, are traditionally sort of seen as ways to get big novelty checks out the door yes. for projects that make you look good politically. Yeah. Um, which this government probably could have stood to do a little more of in the sense that they frequently had very diffuse kind of big novelty checks going out the door instead of very specific ones. So the the sort of thinker's policy person in Ottawa will say, regional economic development agencies are slush funds. Yes. Um, Which isn't really and, true. And they're bad. I, I, and I feel like sh- I overstated the case for that just a minute ago, but yeah, it's... Uh... And they're bad and they should be removed and they should not be given the attention that they were and they should not be given ministers in charge yeah. of slush funds. And Donald Savoie who was like uh, around for you know, the he was the one who sort of was one of the architects if you will of uh, of ACOA which was the first one um has sort of said yeah this didn't really work out like I thought it would <laughs> I, I if I were going back in time I wouldn't recommend doing it and like, I think he makes a lot of good points and I think the, the people who are very skeptical the EDAs make a lot of good points in general but like there I think there is a way to do them right uh there just hasn't been much political will to do them right yeah and yeah. they've been completely on the back burner because Baines has had a huge portfolio Rar. And so it, it was sort of a job half done. They sort of went, you know, took a half measure. And it was um, really easy politically for the opposition parties to say this is all being done out of Ottawa instead of being done by ministers who know what they're doing on the ground, right? Yeah. Like it's easy to make that up. And, and, and regional stakeholders love um, their regional. The minister, yeah. Well, no, their regional economic development agency is because that's where they go for money. Yeah. And they know them, they have um, relationships. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, you need to, if you're, you know, whoever who's looking for regional development agency money, um, and now you need to get in to maybe see Minister Baines to talk about. And Minister Baines has a lot something of happening <laughs> in Northern Ontario that you want a million bucks for. Like yeah. it, it's just a weird dynamic. Yes, now. and that guy is worried about like everything from supercluster's to CRTC regulations to, to bullying the telcos to getting a better deal for cell phone users. Well, just uh, breaking breaking news. Uh, <laughs> we're credibly informed that the CRTC is uh, answers to the Heritage Minister and not the ISED Minister. We apologize for any injuries this may have caused. We are not liable, though. Don't sue us. Um, yes. So all that to say that it's been a crowded a crowded doorway for Minister Baines's office. So yeah, and the reason I just bring this up is because I think ISED is sort of emblematic of the government's approach to you know governing. They they've tried. Some experiments. Wasn't there some kind of like thing where they were going to kind of deliver stuff in a kind of scientific way, like a sort of ology of sorts that was going to like fix a lot of these problems? Uh, I mean, deliver ology. Okay, <laughs> wait. Let's let's finish the cabinet okay, discussion, <laughs> and then and then we. Sh- it's it's really worth um, talking about deliver ology for a few minutes. Um, great episode on that with Rachel Curran. If you go back and look in our uh, our archives ep- episode list, yes. Or no, call them the archives. The archives, the archives, the back catalog, the Disney vault. Um, So all of that is to say something. Something like I said is you know one of the big asterisks. What's going to happen to it? Will it change? Will it not? Will there be regional economic development agencies? Will there not? Will they double down or will they reverse course? 
things like that make it very hard to predict broadly what the hell cabinet's going to look like because you don't know where there's going to be junior ministers. You don't know which departments are going to be DISC and CERNUD. Yeah, um, which is Department of Indigenous Services and the Crown Indigenous Relations the, and Northern Affairs. The splitting. Department, which is split off from Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada. So there's there's always these things that are made. Um, and then all, yeah, all the junior ministers are just shoehorned in wherever yeah. the hell well, they want to put someone. And also the, and I understand why they did this in the last government, but the stopping styling junior ministers as junior ministers or ministers of state was probably a mistake. Well, why did they do that in the they last They did government? that because they didn't want it to be obvious that their junior ministers were disproportionately women. Well, so yes. a, a actually feminist government would have just appointed women to senior cabinet portfolios <laughs> instead of hemming and hawing and doing this fucking uh, slate of hand to make it look like they did. So, I, I don't remember exactly what the pay difference was, but ministers of state got like forty or $50,000 less. Yeah. About, uh, about 70%, you would say, of what a full <laughs> minister makes. So when cabinet was announced, you know, Canada's first gender-balanced cabinet. Um, they some, quickly realized. Some, <laughs> some, well, some plucky journalist did the math yeah, and said, true. your women are making less than your men. And they yes. said, shit. Yeah, we got to fix that. But we're getting rid of ministers of state and everyone's going to make the same wage. Yes. Um, which is, I think, bad for taxpayers. Um Okay. <laughs> All right, um, but also just it, it's made it's it's created some confusion as to which are junior portfolios, which are senior portfolios. There's no longer as much the understanding as to what the pecking order is. Yeah, and, and to some degree, like that's a it's a little asinine, and a cabinet is a cabinet. But on the other hand, you look at like the British cabinet, which is historically and generally much larger than the Canadian cabinet. And as we're kind of the, and I, I know we're getting to this, the size of cabinet is creeping up. Uh, it is useful to have this sort of hierarchy and chain of command within the cabinet table. So just to briefly mention that, the last Trudeau cabinet, or I guess the present cabinet, um, depending on how you count it, if you include Trudeau or not, um, maxed out at 35 people. Um, The largest cabinet historically was 40 people under both Harper and Mulroney have, have been tied for that record. Although Harper's first cabinet was actually incredibly small. I think it was like 24 people. Yeah. Um, so it that sort of gives you a sense of the range of cabinet size. Yeah, and I think there's probably at this point an understanding that you can't really crack forty. It would be it would be capital a bad look. Yes. Yeah. Um, but one of the challenges for the government in composing this cabinet is normally during elections, especially elections where um, the government is losing seats, um, as as was the case here, that more cabinet ministers lose. And so far, they've only had two... I mean, not so far. They, they only had two cabinet ministers. Is there another election coming up? <laughs> oh, God. Um, so they lost Goodale and Sohi. Yeah. Um, two other cabinet ministers have cancer. Um, and yeah. it's unclear what impact uh, their personal health will have on cabinet considerations. Whether and we or not, wish them well. Yeah, of course. Uh, whether or not they are fit enough to... Uh, be placed in cabinet on perhaps this one or maybe wait for a shuffle or yeah. what what have you in the future. Yeah, and two fairly senior people with a lot of experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, two of yeah. the most senior yeah. sort of most tested hands. Yeah, and if, if you're outside of Ottawa and haven't heard the news, Jim Carr announced a couple weeks ago that he had a, a blood cancer, I believe. Yes, yes. I think so. Uh, okay. Which sounds treatable and we do wish him well. And uh, Dominic, and Dominic LeBlanc, LeBlanc has had a, a pretty aggressive uh, lymphoma for some time. So... Depending on whether or not they uh, are included in cabinet, 
there's somewhere in the range of two to four seats that have been, you know, made vacant. Yeah. Um, of a question thir- mark of a thirty-five. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes, you meant the two who lost. Yeah. Yes. Okay, of, of a thirty-five uh, person cabinet, both Western, mind you. That puts you at thirty-one-ish. Yeah. Um, which gives you, you know, room for up to nine other people, um, as well as any promotions and demotions you want to make. I mean, principally demotions. Who who else you want to remove from cabinet? Um, the problem with removing people from cabinet is it pisses people off. Yep. Um, but there's also a risk in not putting people into cabinet. There are a lot of parliamentary secretaries who have put in have their eye on the put in the work. Yeah. yeah, want the promotion. They said, you know, I've sat on a television panel and made myself look stupid reading your talking points for four years now. Why the hell aren't I in cabinet? What, what does a what does a guy have to do? Um, and there have been, you know, people leave this government because, as uh, Jerry Butts acknowledged during SNC, um, because they closed the door to them getting a cabinet uh, position. Yeah. Um, which is when which he- is kind of like, you know, to some degree, fair enough, right? Like, if you if you're serving in a governing caucus, like you, you see a way, and some people are like are happy being backbenchers, but if you're like an ambitious person and it's been made clear to you that you're not going to be in cabinet, like you know, call her a day. Yeah. You- yeah. Go find something else to do with your life. So all of that is to just summarize sort of the decisions the government is going to have to make. And they've given themselves ample time to make it. Sort of unusually, Yes, um, they've named November 20th as the uh, cabinet swearing-in. Yeah, and in perspe- to put that in perspective, last time the cabinet swearing-in was the 4th of November, yes, I believe. with yeah. a roughly uh, equal uh, election date. Yeah. The 19th as well as 21st. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so a long time uh, to make these decisions. And of course... The, uh, the specter of the West. We would be remiss if yes. we did not mention the Western consideration, which is the perhaps the single biggest uh, question mark around the cabinet composition. Uh, that is that Alberta and Saskatchewan... Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. <laughs> have it's no... amazing how no one who isn't from Saskatchewan or hasn't lived there <laughs> is unaware that people in Saskatchewan pronounce it Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Yeah. Have no... Uh, Fun fact for those of you not from or have lived there. Have no liberal MPs. Yeah. Um, so this is a circle that governments have had to square in the past. Yes. Um, in the past, there have been a number of different options taken by the government. Usually senators. Everything from uh, naming senators. Yeah. Um, to serve in I cabinet. Think Trudeau is actually the first government to not name a single senator to cabinet, at least in some time. It's, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure I would go. Well, okay, but, but anyway, it's been traditionally not unusual to have senators in cabinet. Sure. At least one or two. The the first John A. Macdonald cabinet, I think, had 13 senators. Okay, so that's it. obviously less relevant. Now, uh, <laughs> was it 13 or was it? I think it was five. Yeah, thir- Harper had a five, handful. Five and a 13 person. Yeah, Harper cabinet. had a handful. Crittier Martin both had handfuls. Like it's a. Uh, not not incredibly unusual. No. Um, a little bit more awkward because there are no longer partisan caucuses. Is ISG, yeah. or rather, but they're, they're there's still no longer partisan liberal. There's still reasonable candidates like Senator Mitchell or someone like that, who is a former leader of the Alberta Liberal Party. Yes, yeah. and is a not even an ISG. He is a no, non-affiliated senator because he was in the Senate leadership. For well, he's a Senate liberal, right? But no, he's not even anymore. Well, he was, but oh, okay. to go non-affiliated oh, to be part okay. of the. I see. Sort of facilitators or whatever the hell they call yeah, them. Yeah, he hung on as a Senate liberal for some time after the sort of like, disaffiliation, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so someone like that, that's one option. Uh, turn someone. Uh, all eyes are on the NDP candidate in Edmonton, Strathcona. The NDP MP elect in... Uh... Or, yeah, not candidate, but... Uh, so she the, has said that she will not cross the floor. As one of one of these yeah. is not like the other. Um, so there's that. Um, there is the naming of someone pending a by-election. So generally the sort of convention... I guess not the convention, but the norm... Um, is that anyone who's named a cabinet should be a either a a parliamentarian or soon to become a parliamentarian? Yeah, preferably an elected parliamentarian. Yes, sort of how I would sum it up. Um, but with no pending by elections, it's awkward. Yeah, it's a little. It's a, they're usually not a pending by election at the very beginning. I mean, he, they could get someone to resign. No, but you can't get someone to resign in. A provincial in no, Alberta, I mean, you could, in you Alberta could run, or Saskatchewan. No, no, no what I'm saying is, you run someone from Alberta in like wherever, and then they're there. I know it's weird. I'm just saying it's a possibility. So yeah, it's I obviously know. this is a suboptimal situation they're working with. Sure. Um, and then the last example uh, I would mention is the Stefan Zion example. Well, to to flesh that one out a little further, is the Stefan Zion example, who was sort of an academic uh, who was named to cabinet, but was also a candidate. Uh, this is in I think '95. Um, a candidate in a safe riding and so they knew he was going to be elected so they named him to cabinet sort of in advance of his yeah. election and by-election it was both uh, Pettigrew and Zion uh, at the same time um, but then there have been a squillion other hypothetical ideas put out there from Alison Redford putting her hand up and saying worth saying that there are no Alberta vacancies in the Senate right now correct but there is a Saskatchewan one there is a Saskatchewan one yes. um, or there will be very soon no there is one did she already resigned she aged out yeah. she aged out in August oh okay I didn't realize it already oh, Andre Pratt retired also or resigned I, weirdly. I yeah. haven't seen the story as to why that happened yeah he if you found it was too partisan yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> I have some problems with the ISG. Yes, I know. We've discussed them in, at length. Um, See our Senate episode. <laughs> so, long story short, yeah, everyone from Alison Redford to Eyes on Nahid Nenshi Alison and Redford others, is just sweating for that appointment. There's been the suggestion that Christia Freeland um, could be the Alberta point person because she's an Albertan. There's been the suggestion that they shouldn't name anyone because Alberta spurned them. There's the suggestion that... Uh, to be clear, that would be the funniest outcome. <laughs> I don't endorse it, but I think it would be the funniest. I'm sure that would help with interprovincial tensions. Oh, it's uh, definitely. Regional tensions. Great. Yeah. Like, anything you can name, someone has put on the table at this point. Um, 90% of these are not what has historically been the precedent. Um, but I suppose we will have to wait until November 20th to sort of see how this works out. Indeed. Do you have any bets on that one? I don't think you do. I, I, I don't presently. If, if, I were, <laughs> if I were a betting man, I would bet on something wholly conventional like yeah, Senator yeah. Mitchell. Yeah. Um, more so than, you know, bringing in a opposition MP to cabinet that discussions. will not happen. Yeah. Naming them to the Privy Council and only allowing them to be there yeah, for regional uh, conversations. That would not happen. Like, I just, don't see that being the case. There's yeah. all sorts of weird options. Yes. Um, but generally, they're outside of sort of the historical norms. Um, yeah. So, what's... Uh, Do we want to talk about the, the care, ongoing caretaker? So, let, let me address this quickly, and then let's talk about deliverology. Um, so, the caretaker convention... As um, we've discussed before. As we've, as we've discussed before. If anyone unfamiliar with it, it's sort of the mode the federal government goes into during an election... 
so as not to allow the political masters to use their influence to adversely, uh, positively or negatively, impact the election. Uh, broadly, what it means is it's a principle of restraint where political actors step back and the government is sort of put on yeah. autopilot. Um, what's and, and no significant decisions are made by the public servants themselves if, or sort if, of acting. If and, they can avoid it, and yeah. then if they need to make a decision, mm -hmm. often they try and make it with... The, deference to the status quo as far as possible. Yeah, or deference to keeping a future government's option open. Yeah. And there's exemptions. And the, the entire convention, sort of weird to say... Um, is published on the PCO website. It was first published in 2015 by the Harper government. And largely... Kind of odd, eh? Well, largely... That it took so long. Yes, and it's been published in other countries before. Um, but largely the reason why the Harper government published it was because they were involved in ongoing uh, TPP. Trade negotiations, I think yeah. it was TPP, not CETA. Yeah. Uh, TPP negotiations, and so they wanted the political cover to continue those negotiations and get a deal during the rip. Yeah. Um, I, th I think that is perfectly fair and made a lot of valid sense that you can't step out of international the international sphere and say sorry guys, we're on the sidelines while you while you sort out these critical last details because we have an election. Um, you know when you're doing a negotiate multilateral yeah, negotiation, a lot, of there. a lot of other countries are going to have elections too, and you know the well. It's also like everyone said the Canadians step out of the room and say, okay, so uh, <laughs> no, no dairy tariffs. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Great, that's the agreement. Now. Done, sold. You want in? You, yeah. you have to you have to give up dairy. Yeah. Um, but so what was interesting about this one, because our last episode was pre-Caretaker being published because it was pre-writ, um, was that there's revisions. Um, so, you know, there's some light rewrites. But one, I not. one of the biggest revisions in this one, um, for my eye, was the inclusion of specific language around um, what the government was allowed to do in terms of regulations. Hmm. ongoing regulatory work was expressively permitted to continue. Okay, interesting. So think of uh, what they're doing on uh, C-68, which yeah. is the uh, oceans, fisheries. fisheries that's yeah. that's what I was looking for. The the fisheries legislation that passed uh, sort of... Which has a lot of the, room where it says fill, like basically like... Fill in the blanks, fill in with, the blanks regulations. with regulations. Yes. Yeah. And, and so the regulations, or at least half of them, were published um, and were, gazette, were gazetted just before the election. Published in the Canada Gazette, which um, is part of the process for making them official. Yes. Just for free. Which, <laughs> listeners who are unaware of this. Which triggers a you know a 30-day consultation period before they go to Gazette 2 and all, all the rest of this. <laughs> got to cut down on the jargon. <laughs> so, all of that is to say, they included an express carve-out for regulatory processes to continue, in part probably because they passed a huge amount of their legislation at yes. the 11th hour in June they gazetted regulations in summer and they wanted to be able to continue this if they were going to be a government. Uh... Yes. Can I also point out that their minority situation probably means that a lot of government legislation going forward will have a lot of regulatory pieces because yeah. they will have to rely a bit more on that side of their, uh, their, their pocketbook. Correct. A, yeah. a minority government tends to be a more regulatory government because that can be done by the executive. Yeah, they can just do that, like in a room. Uh, but like, once upon a time, laws were more regulatory than they are today. Or, sorry, yeah, law, like, laws yeah. were less prescriptive than they are today. Yes, yeah, legislation Bills has gotten more, more detailed about exactly what should be required. Yeah, like, it, to a degree that is, is, to a past generation, unimaginable. Yes. Which is why they've gotten so long, and why Parliament has had so much trouble scrutinizing them. 
Correct. Part of it. It used to be, you know, a 10-page bill, and this is when they actually read the bills. Like, Yeah, because you could. Verbatim. On the other hand, though, like, you read those bills, you have no idea what the hell it's actually going to look like in practice, right? Because you're debating imaginary regulations at that point instead of the actual letter on the page. So it has its ups and downs. Just to uh, finish this point, there's, there's the Senate is actually interesting here because sometimes, not always, they will have draft regulations in front of them before yes. they pass a bill. Yes. Um, which is not a luxury that the House of Commons often, if right. ever, has. Um, so often senators, when ministers come into committee, senators will ask them, like, where the hell are the draft regulations? We'd like to take a look at that before... Yeah we say this can be done by regulation. Like, maybe we don't want that done by regulation. What the hell are your regulations going to say? Yeah. And senators, or not senators, ministers have made excuses and either promised that uh, they would get them in time or said, like, no, too bad. Yeah. Too bad. You'll never see these. (laughs) While twirling their mustaches. (laughs) And so on a lot of the legislation that was passed by the government in uh, June, there was a lot of regulations gazetted over the summer. Yeah. Um, And so those are now sort of going to be going into final implementation when the government sort of kicks back into gear. So the big, the the stake sandwich question uh, post-election is what happens to opposition leaders who did not win the election? Wait, let me... No, okay, you no, have one thing. Okay. No, let me finish the caretaker. Okay, I thought you were done. No, because my final point on the caretaker was, what's actually weird about it is because of the cabinet uh, being set for November 20th, the liberals have seemingly... there. So the caretaker sort of lightly talks about when it's to be lifted, but it's not actually all that prescriptive. I think most reasonable interpretations say the government could lift the caretaker... I mean, they could have lifted it on yeah, already. election yeah. day um, because there is reasonable certainty. There's no provisions around confidence in the caretaker. But they haven't, seemingly. Um, the government seems content to remain in somewhat of a soft caretaker, making exceptions here and there while waiting for a new cabinet to be named. So it's created this month-long lame duck period that's seemingly really unusual. Um, some ministers' offices are open, some are fully staffed, some aren't, and none of them seem to be doing very much. Um, it's weird. It's bad for taxpayers. It's bad for taxpayers. <laughs> we'll see okay. brother. You good? Yes. Okay, so this takes us to, once again, let me put that steak sandwich right back down on the table. What happens to leaders who didn't win this election? Uh, Yves-François Blanchet. I think can be said to be, in fact, the only winner of this election in some sense. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, so I think he, he's he's fine. He's golden. Uh, he's... Newly elected and uh, former NDP writing in Beto Chambly and uh, probably, you know, like... Who did, he's, he's who did he displace? Matt Dubay, which uh-huh. is sad because he's a good, very good MP. Um, he was a public safety critic in the NDP. Uh, and yeah, one of the McGill Five, I believe, and one who had uh, lasted through a... Uh, one election already, so... Uh, yes. yes. Well, he made his six years, he'll get his pension. That is... I mean, he's like 20-something, so... <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe early 30s. My man's set. The early 30s. I, um, I, I, you know, he's, he's set. He's doing fine. Yeah, the, he, yeah I, we wish him well as well. He's, he's a good guy. Um, but the... Yeah, so that takes us to Jagmeet Singh, who uh, the NDP, as was noticed by most people, lost many of its Quebec seats. Uh, was wiped out in Saskatchewan. Uh put in quite a good showing in bc i think better than expected uh held their alberta seat won a seat in the atlantic region uh and had a kind of a mixed bag in ontario uh i think he's fine i think he's widely recognized to have run a really good campaign um 
you know, and pulled a lot of irons out of a lot of fires compared to where the, I, I, I don't remember who said this. So if so that person is listening, they can feel free to yell at me. But, uh, I think the result was better than what was the wildest dreams of August, but perhaps not as good as the kind of rosiest expectations of mid late October. Sure. Uh, which is like, I think that's a good place to be. Right. And I think that they're in a place where they're not crippled. Right. Like it's a it's a place where the party can can grow back from and that there's now like the leadership, I think, is more settled. I think his performance was quite good. Uh, Caucus has rallied around him. So I think he's fine. Uh, And they're going to have to, you know, like put a pretty good showing moving forward to translate a lot of the energy and popularity that Jigmeet developed over the course of the election into enduring desire of people to vote for the party so do you want to explain why you think uh the party has rallied around Jagmeet, but someone like thomas mulcair got the axe so thomas mulcair i think went into that election saying okay new democrats you can more we're going to mortgage who you are uh but we're going to win and i think a lot of new democrats said okay you know thinking like we're going to be in government and you know what's going to be it's going to be it's all going to be worth it a different chapter and he didn't. We went in with really, really high expectations. And I, I was door knocking in that election. And uh, I can tell you every day it got worse, right? Like, um, So it was, uh, he came out of that bruised with half the seats we went in with expecting to win government. And also, and this is critical, when you make New Democrats not feel good about the campaigns they're running, they remember it. Right. Where I think Jagmeet, we ran a campaign that made New Democrats feel like New Democrats. We're running on pharmacare. We're running on a really bold reconciliation agenda, a really bold environmental platform. People felt good about it. People could get out of bed in the morning and work hard and know that, like, yeah, this is what we actually believe in and what we're fighting for. And then to, you know, see the momentum of the party change with that kind of leadership and with that kind of platform, I think really made people feel good about the party in a way that they haven't in, like, four years so there you go so leaving the ndp there because i'm, I'm conscious of our time our, yes our hard cap uh our soft cap um that takes us to elizabeth may oh does it okay, no, okay. well well i mean sure i just <laughs> talked about elizabeth may elizabeth may i would say i think it's fair to say choked through this campaign they went in with a lot of goodwill they went in with actually a surprising amount of momentum for the Green Party, and they managed to choke really hard on Vancouver Island, which is where they were projected to win a couple of seats. But the mean, um, the mean brochures... The mean, the mean leaflet from the NDP is apparently what completely sunk them, and not the awful campaign they ran for the vast majority of their 36 days allotted to them for people to pay attention to. Very, very powerful leaflet. Yeah, they did win. They held uh, Paul Manley's seat in Nanaimo Ladysmith, yeah. uh, which they had sniped from the NDP in a by-election. And they did win Fredericton, which was, I think, a bit of an upset. Uh, they were projected to, you know, have a respectable showing there. I don't think people saw the win coming so necessarily. Why? This might seem random to a lot of people. Why? Why did the Greens randomly win a seat in Fredericton? Oh, is you the Domino Cardi theory? Just what, okay. What do you... So in the Maritimes, you've traditionally not had much success for left-wing parties. Um, with the NDP kind of running a distant third everywhere but Nova Scotia, uh, and the Greens not being much of a presence in either of those provinces, or any of those three provinces. Newfoundland is a bit foreign to this, so I won't really include it in the scope of this discussion. 
Um, but in New Brunswick and PEI, you had a 2014 and 2015, respectively, provincial elections in which the NDP did not win a seat and the Green Parties did. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New Brunswick uh, Green Party has parlayed that into a couple more seats in their more recent provincial election. And uh, in PEI, they are now the official opposition. Uh, though they were projected at one point to be government, I think they choked on election day with their ground game and didn't quite get it all together. Um, all that said, that has meant that the uh, NDP has kind of, or the Green Party has kind of displaced the NDP at the provincial level as the sort of de facto party of left-wing protest um, in those two provinces especially. So that's why, and the leader of the Green Party seat in New Brunswick is in Fredericton. And they've built a bit of a machine up there in the last couple of years. So that's why. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Elizabeth May has hinted that she is looking for her exit um, while simultaneously hinting that she is wants to be speaker. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, oh, she's great. This is sort of... <laughs> so just quickly, I think Elizabeth May speaks... It's almost the problem we discussed earlier with sort of candidates who get elected and or who run and cause problems for the party because they're just names on ballots. Um, Elizabeth May has is, is a reasonably eccentric person um, and, has, <laughs> and, has avo- nice <laughs> and has avoided a lot of scrutiny yes. of some of the wonky, or not wonkier, wackier, yes. rather, things she said. Or people have sort of like rolled their eyes and moved on. Well, getting know? credit for sort of her appeals for... Civility and s- decency and moving beyond partisanship and all this stuff. Yeah, so she, she's gotten to ride somewhat of a free lunch. Yes. Um, in that no one has really... Which is not uncommon if you're sort of like a distant third, distant fourth party, is that if you're not really seen as a serious contender for government, you're not going to get a lot of scrutiny. Yes, if if you're a one-seat party, people aren't going to spend any time scrutinizing you. Yeah. Um, When you're looking at getting 10% of the popular vote, then you're eating into people's vote shares. Yeah, and then scrutiny is going to begin. You're you're maybe not winning necessarily seats, but you're ruining other people's shots at getting seats, so they want to... Drag you down. Drag you down. Yeah, which is fair. Like, um, look, like, we have, we have, like, as much as Elizabeth May may not like it, we have a first-past-the-post system, and one person is going to win those seats, so they need to be thinking about who other people are voting for. For, for me, Elizabeth May's challenge in this entire election was summed up in, I think it was her performance in the McLean's debate uh, around SNC, where she just started talking about her idea of a forcing SNC to deliver build. water infrastructure for First Nations. Yeah, and, that was that was a hit. And was defending this idea, even though it, unprompted. it's not in the unprompted. platform. <laughs> it was entirely unprompted. And she had gotten already roasted for it. But this is the and, thing. Is and, like, and she acknowledged that it would never be a government's position. It yeah, would be, have to be something a judge order. It's just like, why would you even bring it up then? But it's like exactly the kind of like, I think, Twitter brain where you just cannot let anything go. Yes. Yeah. You have to you have to get your word in on every fight and give them your idea. And she does a lot of off the cuff policy making. Oh my god! Yes, um, that is just incomprehensible. Um, and oh, she said like three different things about student debt in like one press announcement compared yes. to like the press release and the platform. It was like it was wonderful. So like I think in in short I think her leadership has taken the Greens as far as it possibly can. Yeah. And it is 100% time for them to turn well, over it, a new leaf. It's worth saying she has been leader for quite a long time. Um, but the other years. the other challenge is it's been a cult of 
personality to an extent. Yes. And she has actively pushed out rivals. Um, there have been disaffected Greens who've left the party. I'm thinking of the city council. Chernyshenko. Chernyshenko in particular. Yeah. Um, so it's not clear. The former Ottawa mayoral candidate ran for them in Cape Breton, weirdly. Yeah. So it's it's not clear who has, you know, a shot at leading the Greens. They're, well, they're going it, to it have to develop someone. It seems logical to see one of their caucus members. And if yeah. Elizabeth May were really serious about it, something like her stepping down, letting a new leader yes. that is groomed for yes. the role take her seat would be the way to do it because as we learned or, yeah, like, in the past two years, it's really hard for a leader to get traction outside of parliament. Yes, it is. And I mean, there's also like, they have caucus members now too. Uh, I, one of them on Vancouver Island, one in Fredericton, which sort of complicates their math on this because they have a strong base in Vancouver Island and Fredericton is probably as far as they're going to go in the Maritimes short of like maybe Charlottetown. Yes. Maybe if they did really well. So it's kind of like, do they accept that ceiling and put Jenica Atwin, who seems by all accounts to be a, a stand-up person, who's from the very little I know about her, would be a like a good presence in that role, or Paul Manley, uh, who is their other Vancouver Island MP, uh, who from political scuttlebutt around Ottawa perhaps might not be as good a fit for that role. Um but there you go. That's a choice they're going to have to make or pick someone outside and see if Elizabeth May is willing to leave her beloved House of Commons. Yes. Which I suspect she may not be. Let's leave the Greens there. I think and, that's fair. <laughs> and go to the Conservatives. Because the Conservatives, I mean, we've we've now talked about basically all the parties. I mean, this is really the only question mark. Um, but yes, the Conservatives yes. are admittedly the biggest question mark. Yes. They're uh, the pages of the Globe and the Star and wherever else have been full of the gossip of any disaffected Tory um, with a name that anyone would recognize. <laughs> and then? Uh, we'll, we'll be quoted if they say anything questioning. Yes. So Peter uh, McKay is like Andrew what you're alluding to mostly here. Well, no, not, not only Peter McKay. There no, he's not the staffers, only one. But, there yeah. was... Doug you know, Ford. <laughs> on accident from a staffer. All, so, apparently. Yeah, all sorts of people. Yeah. Um, so... You can hear a very loud, loud grindstone coming from the direction of the Conservative Party right now, is what it sounds like. I, I think, to an extent, it's overstated. Um, so there's there's two challenges for Sheer. In the short term, uh, there's a caucus vote. Uh, I think it'll probably be on Wednesday. Um, yes, and it's worth noting that Sheer went into the leadership race, or came out of the leadership race, with like the real lion's share of caucus endorsements. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he's always been someone who's had um, good caucus support. Um, so the short-term test is really keeping caucus in line. The longer-term test is keeping the broader party in line. Yeah, and and, I mean, and that, that comes to a head yes. in April um, at the conservative convention. Yes, and let's... Where there will be a leadership vote. Where is the convention? Do you know? Toronto. Okay, not Edmonton. Because no. I was going to say, April Edmonton <laughs> is not a fortuitous place to be for party leaders who just lost an election. No. So there will be a vote of the membership... Well, no, sorry, not of the membership, of delegates at the convention. Yeah. Um, and historically, uh, in, the con- in the party constitution... It's a vote of 50% plus one. Though, yes, as everyone knows, the real threshold is somewhere closer to 70. Is the, yeah, it was sort of the example set by uh, Joe Clark Clark was the 66% doesn't cut it. Or 67% is sort of where the the mental threshold is. Um, So the question is, 
what does he do between now and then? Conventions are interesting because the people who go to conventions are not normal people. Right. Um, they are often the most hardcore. Yeah. Well, they're paying a lot of money to be there. Yeah, they're paying... No matter if they live there or not, right? Like, it's a... Uh... I think convention entry is basically maximum donation, usually. It's somewhere between, like... Wait, are you serious? Often, Wow, yeah. okay. I, I think... Ours is way cheaper. <laughs> it's <laughs> not cheap, but it's way I'm cheaper. I'm trying to remember if that's just the observer cost. I think or it is. The, yeah, the observer cost is usually much higher. Okay, I, I'm going to speculate, and I'm going to say the delegate cost is probably, like, 800 bucks. Oh. Yeah, that's quite high still seven seven eight hundred bucks it's, it's not like ten dollars okay no yeah the, um, the ndp one the last convention was like the early bird was like triple digits and then the like full was like a couple hundred okay yeah um but anyways so the people who go there all are are nonetheless motivated buying, pl- buying plane tickets booking hotels all the rest of it it is it is not a uh not, not a lark. It's, not a lark. It's not for, cheap. For, for you, sure. you have to be pretty committed. Yeah. And so often the people who go there have, you know, are social conservatives, with ideological bents, red Tories trying to get back the party, whatever combination. Yeah. Um, but people who are have their issue and are really engaged or just people who like to be close to politicians. Or you, you really don't like birthright citizenship for whatever reason. <laughs> so that guy is... That was, that's the rebel kid, isn't it? I, I think, actually don't yeah. know if it is, Keenan. I think it was the rebel kid. Um... So, long story short, there's a bit of a snowball right now, and then the next coming weeks, we'll see whether or not that snowball picks up steam. Yes. Um, to mix metaphors. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Snowballs, uh, well known for their love of, <laughs> of hot, hot liquid. <laughs> well, obviously steam, not a liquid, but. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. now you're killing it. Known for their love of high temperatures, let's put it that way. Um, so, on, honestly, I think it, there, there is the possibility for it to go either way. Um, which direction it goes, to a large extent, will depend on how Andrew Scheer is able to um, handle communications over the next few months. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, perhaps even shorter than that, perhaps over the next few weeks well, might be determinative. One worrying sign for him, I think, has been the Disappearing Act. Like in that he has not really been seen nor heard from in like a couple of days here as this stuff is ongoing. Uh, Tom Mulcair famously vanished for for a while before resurfacing on this sure. hour's twenty two minutes doing like the cringiest Drake thing imaginable, and then failed to work the floor at that convention at all. Yeah. Um, like just a lot of people went there open minded about voting for him and <laughs> voted against him because he made absolutely no effort to earn their vote. So I think complacency is a real danger for party leaders going I, in this situation. I don't dispute that in the slightest. I like, like I said, I think you know in the next few weeks we will yeah. have a very clear picture as to whether or not he is going to fight for it and what direction things are going to take. Because left to their own devices, people get more emboldened when they yeah. see other people quoted in the Globe and Mail for yes. spouting off their opinions. Yes. And they, they want to be quoted in the Globe and Mail Ex- too. Especially if no one is calling them and saying, like, if you say anything, like, yeah. your career is over. Stop you this. Like, yeah. Stop this right now. And also we're saying, I mean, I, I think the, the elephant in the room here is that like, much like Tom Mulcair's performance in the 2015 election, and as Peter McKay memorably said, this was, I think, a winnable moment for the conservatives. It's not to say it was easy, right? I think I think McKay, who said that this was a breakaway on an open net, I think that's taking it too far. Yes. But I think they, they did catch the Liberal Party in a unique moment of weakness with this leader and really failed to capitalize on it because they didn't know how to switch gears and take advantage of it. 
because they were they went in with their strategy of let's get as many of our people out as possible which is what they do every election to motivate the base as much as possible and like hope that enough liberals stay home that you're broadly 30 percent of the electorate turns into 40 percent of the actual votes um if they get you to majority that you know that's worked for them before uh it didn't work against this guy last time and i think the odds are that they were prepared for it by getting their people as geared up as possible with the sort of threat of social conservative Andrew Scheer coming for, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say they ran a really bad campaign and not to get too much into the postmortem here, but like, it is really fair to say they blew it. That's not to say that Andrew Scheer would continue to necessarily blow it in perpetuity, but like they did blow it and they kind of need to own that. And it shows a little bit of, of humility. So I, disagree with you on some of these things sure um we disagree on a lot of things <laughs> um I, I mean so okay what, what i don't want to do is i don't want to relitigate no, no, the no, campaign that, that's which, which fair, is yes. which is what we're getting into sure um to to go fall back to process for just a moment there is a post-mortem process that's being done right now yeah um, where they've basically called in people to do the postmortem and sort of do the lessons learned from the campaign, which I think is always an important exercise, yeah. um, just reflexively after an election that you you lose. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that will also be one of the significant um, determining de- uh, determining factors as to sort of where things go and what what they sort of internally point to as the reason. Um, they weren't able to capitalize yeah. on, well, and like on, on this election. Rushed into GTA, for instance. Yeah, the, yeah. Everyone, everyone's pointing to the GTA as a big yeah. challenge. Um, it's a challenge for everybody who is not the liberals. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, the questions about Doug Ford and why why did Doug Ford do better in the GTA provincially than Sheer did federally, and all, all the rest of this has yeah. been uh, at the center of uh, innumerable op eds and columns over the past two weeks. Um, but you know. I'm not willing to count Andrew Shear out yet. Um, I, I don't think that the tide is... To be clear, is, I'm not either. Yeah, yeah I, no. I, don't, I don't think that the tide is substantively um, opposed to him at this point. I think he's at a decisive moment and needs to, like, emerge from the shadows at some point here. Because he's, like, he do, if people get emboldened and the snowball does pick up steam, <laughs> uh, then he will be in trouble. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right, and I think that's right of any leader, is that you, you know, you take a hard loss, you take a few days off, and then you have to get back on the horse. Yeah. Um, and you have to get the back. snowball horse. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you get on that snowball, that, <laughs> that snowball horse, and yeah, you, I mean, you pick up the phone, you talk to your caucus, you get them on the same page, you let them know that you're not planning to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and that that's what he needs to do now. Yeah. And we'll, I mean, frankly, we'll know in... A week, yeah, pretty soon, probably, yeah. Uh, whether he's doing that, yeah. Um, so we'll we'll see. I think that'll wrap it for us today. Yes, we will have to leave the tantalizing discussion of deliverology and the liberals' abandonment of deliverology. Oh, we have the, a whole episode on it. To the next one, yeah, we have a whole episode. You can listen to it; it's a good episode. Uh, our beer review this week. Yes, Lawson's Finest Liquids. Yes, which was a lovely brewery that Etienne and I, along with some other friends, visited uh, last weekend. We went to Vermont to drink beers, mostly. Um, yeah, really, really good. It's a sort of... Would you say it's kind of the original New England IPA? No, I give Hetty Topper oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. distinction of like the original New England IPA. Um, but it is certainly one of the top 
It's really good. Five yeah. New England IPAs. Very fruity, tropical fruit hop character IPA. Like, good stuff. I mean, we've done a, a review of like a billion of these things at this point of New England IPAs. We like them. They're good. Yeah, I mean, they're sort of the... If you go to Vermont, get one. They're sort of the... I mean, they were the fat and beers two years ago. Yeah, it's still kind of. And, and, and they still are hazy IPAs. And the thing is, is that they're good. Because they're right? delicious. <laughs> like, they are really good. It's worth saying. Uh, they made an IPA that doesn't taste like pine salt. That's not to love, you know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you can follow us at Short Pants Pod, uh, where you can catch mostly Etienne doing the tweeting these days. I really haven't tweeted in a while on there. So, yeah, all the bad stuff from the past month or two, that's that's all Etienne. Um, yeah, that's kind of it. Follow SoundCloud, yes. I guess. Hopefully uh, we will now do podcasts more regularly. Yeah, we're back on the horse here, the snowball horse, and uh, <laughs> we're going to keep her going. Um, yeah, okay, that's it. Bye-bye, everyone. You want to do it too? Oh, yeah. Bye-bye.